The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making an investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking investment insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. This is, in fact, a new world. And this new world is going to challenge us as leaders, challenge us as companies to frankly make a difference at a level we haven't fully thought through yet. That was Lakshman Narasimhan, CEO of global consumer goods company Reckett Benkiza, the makers of brands such as Dettol, Mortine and Vanish, discussing the challenges that COVID has released on the business world in 2020. Welcome to episode three of In The Know. Lakshman Narasimhan was appointed CEO of RB just a few months before COVID-19 hit and inherited a global consumer goods giant with a range of considerable multifaceted challenges. Despite their health and hygiene products selling across more than 180 countries, recent years had not been kind to RB, with misfortune and miscalculation denting the trust of both consumers and investors. In this wide-reaching interview, Lakshman shares his perspectives on those challenges, including the decision to reunite the hygiene and health divisions of the business. We find out how RB has responded to the COVID pandemic and more about its relationship with China during rising international tensions. And we ask where Lakshman places RB in the big issues around environmental and social responsibility, given the company's promise to pursue a cleaner, healthier world for all. All that's coming up in a moment, but first, Here's Hamish Douglas with some words of welcome. Welcome back to all our listeners. This is the third episode of In The Know, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Lakshman Narasimhan, the Chief Executive Officer of Reckitt Benkiza, which owns some of the world's most well-known brands, such as Lysol, Dettol, Finish, Mortine, Nurofen and Vanish. RB has been at the intersection of consumer behaviour during this pandemic, and at the same time, the company has been implementing a turnaround strategy. The company's recent performance has been truly extraordinary during these very challenging times. Lakshman, firstly, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your insights. Thank you for uh, having me. I deeply appreciate it. I'd like to first ask, if I may, on a personal note, how is your family? Are they still in the United States or have they joined you in the UK? We've gone through five months of uh, a very difficult time with this pandemic and being in two different countries. But they're here, I feel five years younger. Well, it's terrific. It's very good to hear the family. You're all back together. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with some background, sort of personal information and your journey to becoming a chief executive of Reckitt. Maybe you could start with your upbringing in India and your education background. I'm the only surviving child of three. And so my parents were incredibly loving and uh, very caring. My father was the CEO of a company that made laminates. And then when he turned 53, he decided he would start a business because he felt I should be in that business. It was tough to break the news to him that I found the business particularly boring, but he went at it anyway. My mother is a primary school teacher. And uh, the, the three of us lived in a town called Pune, India, which is the Western part of India. We were all large cricket fans, and sport was very big in our house. But my father took ill when I was about 17, 
And from the age of 19, I actually worked evenings getting him ready for work. And he unfortunately passed away when I was 22. So he was my first boss. And at the age of 21, uh, he accepted a job for me to go into a startup, which let's just say was met with some consternation. But I ended up doing it for three years. It was a great experience. I learned a lot about setting up a business, making payroll, running a P&L, all the things that I realized very early on in life I actually was trained in. And then at the age of 24, I was admitted to the Lauder program at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a joint degree program with Wharton School. And I had very little money. So I sold my car. I sold the one painting of three that my father left me. And I, I went off to America with, as I said, $7,700 and two suitcases. And because I'm Asian, I also had a pressure cooker with me because my mother thought I wouldn't eat very well. And so I ended up in Philadelphia. And then the journey started right there. So... I really enjoyed my time at Wharton. It was a tough slog. I worked multiple jobs while I was there over the course of the two years. But it was a great experience. I learned a lot and it set me up for my life today. Well, I understand you then went on to McKinsey and Company and at a fairly young age rose to leading much of the consumer practice. And then you went to PepsiCo in 2012, I believe. How difficult was it to jump the fence from consulting sort of working on strategy to actually the operational management side of business? You know, I've been considering joining PepsiCo for almost six years before I finally did it. And I remember my first interview with Indra Nui was when the succession was going on at PepsiCo. I didn't quite know that it was going on, but it was right around that time. Uh, but it took me six years to finally make the leap. And I finally did. I mean, she's a tremendous leader. But part of it was also the attraction of working with my first boss, Brian Cornell, who is now the chairman and CEO of Target. You know, he's a big mentor and uh, someone who really taught me. I've watched him very closely for two years, working literally by his side as we worked on businesses as diverse as Frito-Lay and Quaker, as well as the business in Latin America. And it's that sort of very intense schooling that I learned that I had to unlearn a few things. I had some skills that I could capitalize on. And there was certainly the entire side of scale leadership of people that you have to learn. I mean, I was moving from leading maybe 50 people, right, on the various teams I had, to all of a sudden being responsible to 5,000 people in the finance organization because I was CFO. And so PepsiCo took a bet on me, there's no question. And they took a bet on me to make me CFO of a $26 billion business. It's not a business that, you know, I'd never been a CFO in my life. And so I learned a lot. I learned a lot about things like Brazil value-added tax, things that really you need to do to deliver every quarter. So it was a great training ground, and Brian was a tremendous role model, tremendous inspiration, and Indra was uh, tremendous as well in the way that she taught me and created opportunities. So it's that transition. I think it's a question of how you transition, who you transition with, that become really important, and you have to have the humility of unlearning things that you have learned. And then last year you left PepsiCo, and thank you for what you did at PepsiCo. We've actually got a large investment in PepsiCo as well. We're great fans of the business. But then you became CEO of Record. And when you arrived at Record, many people viewed that Record had somewhat lost its way. It recently had undertaken a very large acquisition of Mead Johnson, the infant formula business, and it was charging down a strategy to separate the company into two companies, effectively into the hygiene business and the health business. And we as a large shareholder were not that enamoured with that proposal. What were your first impressions of Record in terms of the brands, the market opportunity, 
the operational capability and the culture of the company when you arrived, given there was some sort of turmoil that was occurring at the time? You know, this is a company that has brands with a lot of soul. My first impression was, my goodness, these brands have tremendous soul and tremendous footprint and the ability to, frankly, be much bigger than they were. I grew up with Dettol in my house. Lysol is a brand that was created during the cholera epidemic in the late 1800s and played a big role in the Spanish flu. Dettol had an impact on maternal sepsis. Durex is a brand that's almost 100 years old, if you think about it. And it's a brand that was making a big difference in the lives of consumers. So the brands really had soul. If I get into the operational capabilities of the business, clearly there were things that I think the company, which had a tremendous run and was extremely successful and had actually, frankly, defined many of the practices that competitors would look at and frankly marvel at, we'd lost our edge. Our supply chain had the bones but frankly hadn't been invested in in order to evolve into the new world. We were spending on brands, but we could have done a much better job in extracting value from that. We were great at procurement, but we had lost some of the edge in there too. So if I just go down the path here, there were things that we had done, I think, over the course of years. And I think it's just about management and where management thought the focus needed to be, all, by the way, with the right intention at some level. But at the end of the day, when you don't exercise your muscle over time, it atrophies. And I think what I saw was great brands, what I call a good house, the market opportunity, great neighborhood, just given the upside that existed. But at the same time, the house needed some remodeling and some fairly extensive remodeling. On the culture side, this is a company of owners. There's almost nearly half of this company owns shares in this company, which actually puts a different edge to it. You know, I remember my first earnings call, I was about to leave to go and do it. And my assistant looked at me and said, I just want you to know I'm a share owner. And, you know, it sort of brings some edge to it. It really does. Because it doesn't sort of, when you come back, you realize there's 20,000 people, 21,000 people out of a 42,000 people who are watching you. And they want to know why. So this is a company of owners. This is a company that actually had a culture of create innovation, new brands, new ways of doing things. And I think we'd lost our edge there. And third, there's a third aspect of culture, which is a delivery culture. It was almost impossible to imagine that in the previous times, Record was a company, you know, that would have a surprise. But here we were, and I remember when one of the analysts told me, you guys have missed expectations 13 out of 14 times. We had lost that edge in delivery. And by the way, it wasn't just delivery. It was delivery with a focus on the short term rather than a focus of balancing the long term with the short term. The final thing about the culture was, it needed to also bring more care into it. We needed to find ways to ensure that this wasn't a company that operated by itself, but also found ways to join forces to win bigger. That was not in the DNA of the company. And it's clearly something that we're bringing in now. And one of your first decisions was to convince the board, and I guess also the shareholder community, to change course and not to split the group into two separate businesses. How did you go about gathering the information to make the decision And how much sort of internal resistance did you face? Obviously, you had people who were going to maybe become separate chief executives. People have gone down the path. They've been giving a lot of autonomy. How did you bring people with you and get the right data to make that decision? So this was happening at sort of multiple levels. The first level, I would say, was listening. As you know, I've spent time with you, Hamish, and you were very 
you know, very open about your perspectives, as were several other major investors that I spoke to. So I spent quite a bit of time talking to investors, getting their view. I spent time in the business. You know, I started my first day in China. And then from there, I went around the world and talked to people, went to the operations, sold with them. This was an important element, by the way, because I wanted to sell with them to see what was happening in the markets. I remember my first interaction with you, you made the point, because I went back to your notes and actually looked at it, you said, what's happening with the market in terms of deleverage? And clearly, as I went around to, to the various markets and looked to see what was happening when we were selling, it was quite clear that that was happening. So I uh, spent time in markets. Third, embedded myself with consumers and the learnings we had and with customers. And the customers were very direct about, they saw us as one, they did not see us as two. Most investors saw us as one, did not see us as two. But actually, the place where it all came together was actually the R&D labs. You know, I was in the R&D lab in Montvale, New Jersey. It's a place where we do both Dettol and Lysol. And I was sitting with the people there, the R&D people, and they were telling me all that they were doing. And what you began realizing, and I think you see this in Australia, clearly with the multiple brands we have in the space, was they had a big map there. A map had bugs in it. And the bugs, what they showed me was the bugs were getting bigger and the bugs were getting far more global. And as I sat there and I said, my goodness, because, you know, we were talking about Zika in Florida or some of the other bugs around the world. And I said, what happens if these bugs suddenly sort of show up? What happens? And they said, well, till there's a vaccine or till there's some sort of treatment, there's periods of time when there is absolutely nothing. And the only thing we have to do is we're going to have to be hygienic. We're going to have to find ways to ensure that the world is clean. And as we sat there with the science community inside the company, it became very clear the purpose of why we existed was to protect, heal, and nurture in this relentless pursuit of a cleaner and healthier world. This reason we existed became, in fact, the governing thought that I engaged with the board on, with customers on. By the way, the customers were incredibly positive about that mission and said, we understand why you exist. It's exactly the kind of partner we want. Recall, this is about you know, two or three months before Wuhan or anything, you know, it was like we're talking October, November. And then we went to the board meeting in January, the middle of January. And I remember I talked to the board about this and the board said, the facts are clear. You know, we actually put the economics together. We looked at what drove shareholder value creation. We knew it was about top line growth and that's what we needed to do. So we put the whole picture together, which said, we need to invest in this business in order to drive top line growth, because that's what's going to drive long term shareholder value creation. Within this rubric of this reason we exist, which is this purpose, the board bought into it. And once the board bought into it, I came back to my hotel room. And the very next morning, I had a call from Shanghai because there was a big question which said, we're going to need to keep the factories open over the spring festival. And I said, why is that? They said, well, there's a breakout of pneumonia. And we've been told informally that it would be good if you got as much supply of Dettol as possible. Our factory of Dettol is in Wuhan. So it literally all came together in some ways, in a way that we could then be really helpful to the world. So it reinforced the direction we were going. So it is about facts, it's about the humility to listen and learn, but also bring it together, grounded in a perspective around why we exist, but also what really drives shareholder value. And my sense is what that has then done is, it has given me the ability to talk to multiple stakeholders including investors, including the community, including our people, to bring them along. Your final question about pushback inside the organization, you're absolutely correct. At the end of the day, when people buy into a certain vision, you end up behaving so, and you want that to play itself out. So we did lose a couple of people, Hamish, we did. Unfortunately, 
But I think what has happened is it's given the opportunity for other leaders to step up. And we brought people in from the outside. We've also increased the leaders from inside. And what we now have is a leadership team. I just spent the last three days with them actually in person, socially distanced. You've got a set of leaders who are incredibly capable from inside the company as well as from outside who are raring to go. And maybe we could move on to COVID and the pandemic. You're in a very interesting seat. You're leading the world's largest hygiene company, a very, very large surface care business, a very large personal hygiene businesses as well. You know, you own the finished dishwashing tablet business, you own Lysol, you own Dettol, you own PinoClean in Australia and the brands go on and on. And and it's brought, it, it appears, a huge amount of consumer change towards hygiene practices. How do you distinguish between changes that may be temporary as we're in lockdown and people, well, we don't have a vaccine and changes that may be more permanent And how are you prioritising where you should be making investments in this environment? We're watching the consumer deeply. What we are seeing is we are seeing a large number of new consumers come into the category. You know, Hamish, if I were to give you a statistic, only 20% of people wash their hands after going to the bathroom, right? The number in the UK, by the way, is a third men, two-thirds women, and 99% tell you they do, right? So just look at the upside that exists just in that one behavior, right? But what we are watching is we are watching penetration. And what has been amazing to see, I mean, it's quite remarkable to see the number of new people who have come to the category. We're also seeing frequency increases, right? We're also seeing people say they do this, but now they're doing that, right? And we are seeing big channel shifts. I'll talk about China and show at some point, but... What we are seeing is the shift to e-commerce and what people are doing digitally is actually really quite large. So we're watching the consumer deeply. And there are things they're doing that, frankly, I don't think will survive or will last the way they do right now. One example, in the area of uh, sexual well-being, we have Durex, which is a very large brand. What we are seeing is some impact because people aren't going out and socializing. And, you know, after all, some of the products we make, the idea of socially distancing with those products is... It's tough. So I think, you know, it does have an impact. But the humans are humans and behaviors will change. In a very similar way, you're seeing nesting, people staying at home, cooking more. What is interesting is, if, you know, if I go back to my previous slide, one of the things I was really worried about was culinary IQ was going down. People were actually not cooking enough. And in fact, how to cook was a muscle that was being lost. That is changing. Now, having said that, people will go out more. So if in the U.S., 62% more plates being washed, right? That number is never going to remain 62. It's going to come down. But actually, people have discovered cooking as a way to relax, as a way to entertain, as a way to, frankly, bring their families together. So will that number go to zero? I don't think so. But will the number remain at 62? I don't think so. So we shouldn't bet on the 62. But we should bet on a number that says, you know, hey, this is going to improve. What is that going to mean for us? In a very similar way with hygiene. New consumers coming in, we don't expect all of them to leave. And we've gone back in time and looked at SARS and MERS and what happens there. With SARS and MERS in China, we did see a change. We saw new people come in, frequency go up. In fact, consumption went up. Consumption came down from the peak, but it never came down to zero. I mean, it basically went back. It was a structural change. The longer this stays, the more you're going to see this. Consumers, once they're exposed to a behavior for more than 60 days, they stick with some parts of the behavior. The longer you go and more people change their behavior, it becomes societal. And so, you know, we're looking at this. 
We're building in the appropriate amount of flexibility in the investments we make, but we're watching penetration, we're watching frequency, we're watching where consumers go. And that's going to guide us in terms of what we do in the medium to long term. And trust in brands is really important here. You've just taken Lysol into Brazil, so you're opening up a new market. You're taking both Lysol and Dettol into new distribution channels, into the professional services channel, into some hotel chains and and airlines. Well, why don't they just go for sort of a no-name brand and these are the biggest brands in the game and you seem to be investing in opening up entirely new markets here for your brands. How important is the brand and continuing to invest in the brands? Again, in the spirit of being humble, our brands led us into these new spaces. We had a call from Hilton. It just happened that they had done some testing. They wanted to talk to us about this idea. We did talk to them. And you know, a few weeks later, we had a business. A lot of other people have actually tested our brands versus others and have realized that this actually is what gives consumers the greatest amount of trust. I have joined customer meetings where customers will say, should I put private label in or should I put your brand in? And in these kind of worlds, what you see is the large trusted brands that have had a heritage. I mean, Lysol's got almost a 200-year history, right? 150-year history. And you've got this belief that if I spray something, you want to know it works. And Lysol communicates that to, to people in space. So it has taken us into new countries. And, you know, we continue to expand even more. Brazil, obviously, is one of the markets that we're in with Lysol. We're expanding in markets where we've traditionally been underpenetrated in some of these brands. We're putting money into it and investing behind it. And some of these new opportunities like professional is a way for us to bring the brand to places where consumers are looking for trust. Consumers are looking for some belief visibly that, you know, even if everything is invisible, this brand is there and this brand will be my guide. And you mentioned earlier e-commerce, you mentioned the words e-commerce, but that's a new distribution channel. It's a complex distribution channel. It's just e-commerce is three or four different channels within e-commerce. We've got new ways of to market, particularly digital marketing. And this is changing how consumer goods companies go to market, you know, and it's allowing new brands to be developed and it's challenging traditional brands as well. Do you see these sort of channel shifts and e-commerce as an opportunity or a threat? And how is RB sort of adapting to this new world? It is both an opportunity and it is a threat. And therefore, we lean in, but we lean in with our eyes open and we lean in obviously with a different level of management of what is happening because it's actually quite important. I think the company has traditionally been investing in e-commerce quite substantially. You know, it's now almost 12% of our revenues in you know, higher in health, a little less in hygiene, but certainly it is a big part of our business and it's growing enormously. I mean, the first half of the year, we've shared some numbers about the growth. And part of it is driven by the fact that consumers are shifting. Now, to the point you made, Hamish, is that it is very complicated because it's not all the same. You have people who are now looking for seamless omni-channel experiences. And so some of the large retailers are investing in e-commerce like perhaps they never had because it's been quite a step change. And I see particularly in Europe, there was a period of time, you know, if you look at Amazon, what they've done with the US, the pressures that Amazon put on a bunch of other retailers, man, they were really in a lot of ways keeping up. And you see the great successes of Walmart, Target in this space in terms of what they've been doing. I think in Europe, they had clearly been the early folks in the, into the game, but they're moving much more aggressively than they have in the past. And of course, we're in China, which is where, by the way, our learnings do come from. 
it is very complicated there because there you've got so many different types of things happening, both in terms of how you build your brands, how you're relevant to consumers, how they prefer you, where they shop you, how it's delivered. It's an incredibly complicated environment. And we have to get more sophisticated in the way we manage it, and particularly how we manage channel conflict, how we think about products and product packaging, how we think about pricing, and how the pricing doesn't in some ways become dilutive, and how we ensure execution. Because execution, the bar is very high, availability of products inside the e-commerce channels, given the algorithms and how they work. Consumers' tolerance for the lack of delivery is lower, and they want some things quicker, you know, in some cases. So the operational sophistication of how you deal with e-commerce is up, but the opportunity is large. But if you don't do it right, it could be a problem. So we have to do this very carefully, and we are. And maybe I could move on to China. You've got a large and growing business in China. Me Johnson, your infant formula business, it's a very important business as well, but it's a very important business for your hygiene brands as well. What's happening in China and how do you protect the brand development given the geopolitical tensions that are in the world? How do you not get caught up with what's going on with the United States, for instance? You're not a US company, but Me Johnson may be perceived as US brands and the UK is not immune at the moment from the tensions given what's going on with Hong Kong at the moment. What do you see as the opportunity in China? How big is it and how are you managing the sort of brands and what they represent given the geopolitical tensions which are probably not going to disappear tomorrow? Well, first of all, I have a deep respect for China. I have been traveling there for the last 20 years or so and I've just seen the progression in the country, and it's remarkable to see. I started my first day as CEO in China. In a lot of places where you can signal things, and I started my first day in London, I'm not sure anybody really care. But actually in China, I went there because I wanted people to realize how important it was for us. My first day this year, in 2020, was actually in Shanghai. And again, because what I was doing was ensuring the organization understood the significance and importance of China for us going forward. Secondly, it's one-fifth of the world's population, roughly. And it is a material part of the consumer of consumption going forward. So as a consumer company, China is very important for us. Third, I think the only way to succeed in China is to be in China for China and to be in China from China to the extent that that is of relevance. And so I think that our business in China is very Chinese and will need to be even more so. And my intention very much is that we become even more Chinese over time. Because at the end of the day, we're a collection of businesses around the world. We obviously have things that we can share globally. But particularly when you're talking about one-fifth of the world's population, we have to essentially be in China, for China, and be Chinese even more so. And so I'm looking at our portfolio of businesses Clearly, in hygiene, there's a big opportunity for us. And by the way, Dental is a great brand and has done very well, all of that. We also have Durex, which has been there for a long time, and lots of things that we're doing with, with that brand as well in terms of growing it. But our entire portfolio has not shown up in China. Clearly, we have Lee Johnson, we have a bunch of businesses there, brands there too. But again, those brands have Chinese names and they're local in that sense. And so we don't carry any flag when we go there. Like I think some companies have a flag associated with their name. I think our brands don't as much, largely because they've been in China, for China. And at the end of the day, we will do things to ensure that we are relevant to the country. Thank you, Achman. In terms of ESG, it's obviously a very big topic in the investment community. But 
You talk about living our purpose at Reckitt, and there's a lot of difference between proactive and reactive responses to living purpose or ESG. I'm really interested to understand from your perspective is who's driving the bus here? Who's driving the agenda? You know, are you reacting to sort of government regulation? Are you reacting to investors or shareholders? Are you reacting to employee concerns? Is it what you think consumers are going to be wanting in terms of the brand? Or do you think corporations themselves need to define what their purpose is and drive the agenda rather than wait and react to different stakeholders saying this is important or that's important? How much is it forward-looking from a company in defining purpose or waiting until somebody else defines it for you and then react to it? First of all, every company is in a different place. And one of the challenges you have when there's someone on the outside, whoever it might be, who sort of defines this is how it should be, they sometimes don't recognize the reality of every company, right? And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, first of all, ESG is not ESG uniformly the same everywhere. Governance has to be at the highest levels, no question. I mean, that's almost ticket to play, and there's no way around that. So governance clearly is up there, because that, to me, is almost ticket to play. But I think companies need to define how they're going to, in fact, really matter in what they do. Now, we are living in a world where there's no question that the science tells us that global warming is happening. There's just no debate about this. As a world, we've come together and said, with the Paris Accord, we've said 2050. Now, you know, we have made a commitment that we will essentially meet the conditions to ensure that we 1.5 degrees Celsius before you know, 2040. Now, we've said that 10 years before, and we're putting all the plans in place in order to make that happen. The thing we don't do a lot of is we're not really tom-toming it terribly, right? But we are in our own quiet way. We are moving on that. And we've actually made the commitment publicly. You'll see it on our website. But the one thing about every company is every company has a different role. And the one thing we miss is S. Now, with the fractures taking place in the world and what is happening, particularly as you look at nonprofits, you look at NGOs, you look at large organizations, you look even at governments, they are struggling with S. And the fact of the matter is we as a company have brands that play a big role in S. You know, be it if I look at hygiene or look at Durex or I look at some of the things that we bring to bear, on, by the way, make us almost a quasi-private public health company, if I could use that word. Not that that's the word we want to use. But we have to play a bigger role in S than even potentially E. Because for us, that's what our brands do. So we work on ESG through our brands, which what that means is that we have to assert what we are going to do in terms of, you know, frankly, making a difference. Because our consumers look for it, but our communities also look for it. And if we want to be a company that really matters, consumers and communities will guide what we do. And that's where we spend our time. I actually think some of the other stuff that happens, the reporting, the advertising, and all that is sort of in some ways less relevant to be very frank with you, because people do a lot of that. But we're not going to do that. We're going to essentially focus on E and ensure that we put the things in place to get the 1.5 degrees. And then on S, we want to over-index because our brands really play a role in that, which is why we started the Fight for Access Fund, which is why we actually got together with Yale and Cambridge and Tsinghua, very important for China, all in the Institute of Medical Sciences, as well as the National University of Singapore, 
to create the Global Hygiene Institute, because what it's doing for us, it's saying, what's the evidence and how do we drive behavior change? Bring that together will really help us. And also the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Health. So with that, we can play a role in this. And we know that that's very special for us. So we cannot be off on E. And by the E has to be done in partnership with many people, which is why one of our values that we are going to further talk about is this idea of joining forces to win bigger. The scale matters. I mean, the plastic supply chain is not something that one company can really sort through. It's an entire system. So you need to be part of the system that brings that problem, you know. But on S, we can play a role through our brands. And on something like plastics, is there a lot of global cooperation with the major companies? Obviously, you've put your goals out there. Another major investment we have, Nestle, have put out very similar goals on plastic reductions. Is this sort of a a leadership group that's occurring this? Because it's not government regulation. You're leading government regulation. Obviously, plastics in oceans and things are a major problem. You know, how do you get a global accord? But major corporations seem to be taking the lead. There's no question that the science requires collaboration because we do need scientific unlocks. There's no way to get to this without the scientific unlocks. And the scientific unlocks require bets to be made and for us to look at different ideas. And then at some point in time, this combination of, you know, we've had a real breakthrough at a cost that makes sense will happen. And I think what you are seeing is real collaboration. I mean, the Consumer Goods Forum is a great convener of this. We're obviously seeing other places, some other alliances that have emerged, you know, and companies are all part of it. And you can't just choose one or the other. You probably will have to think about at least two or three of them. But unless you lean in and say, I'm going to collaborate, even if you're a competitor in this particular dimension, there is no way. This is pre-competitive. This actually defines the industry in so many ways. You have to collaborate. And by the way, the leaders of the industry are. And maybe bring it together a bit. A bit more than a year in now is at 2019. We're now 2020. What do you see as the opportunity now for record in terms of the brands and the positioning you have? What's your sort of vision over the next sort of five and 10 years of where you are on the journey at the moment? I think the first thing is, you know, we have to be humble. We have to say, first of all, that we have to regain our performance credibility. And that's really a big deal for me. And so the focus is on that to ensure that we execute and we get the performance credibility back so that people aren't going to sit and look at us and say, hang on a minute, you know, you're not performing. Or, you know, so performance credibility is actually a really large focus for us. The second thing is the brand and brand portfolio provides us with enormous growth potential. And so what we are doing is looking at the brand portfolio and looking to see what is it that we can do to truly maximize the value of those brands. And third, we're building the underlying business. You know, while we're making progress, and obviously COVID's been a help in many dimensions, but also, by the way, a drag in some others, we are looking at the underlying business and ensuring we're making the investments in some cases, slower than what we like because of COVID, because we have a hard time entering factories or whatever. And in some cases, it's going exactly to plan. We are building the underlying business. And so over a couple of three years, I would feel much better about the investments we've made and the capabilities we've built. And the fourth is we're getting ready for this transition that is happening, both leadership transition in terms of the leaders in the company and the new people we brought in and our people we've elevated and how we work together and how we essentially embrace this culture but also the consumer transition. There's so much happening. And, you know, the bets we're making, we're going to have to get ready and it's going to take up the amplitude of how we do things. This is a very fast company. I mean, this is not a company that has to be more agile and all those words. I mean, it really moves quickly. I can see this. I mean, you say something, it just goes, right? But we have to, in some ways, respond to the consumer, the communities in ways that are faster. 
If I think about the longer term and I say, what is it we want to be? Over a 10-year period, we want to be a company that really, first of all, is successful, but is also a company that matters, you know, that has actually made a real difference. And I think in this time when this is a game changer, this is, in fact, I believe strongly, this is, in fact, a new world. And this new world is going to challenge us as leaders, challenge us as companies to frankly make a difference at a level we haven't fully thought through yet. We haven't fully played this pandemic out. I hate to say this, but I don't know whether we're even halfway through it, to be very frank. We just don't know, right? We don't know. We may very well be halfway through it. We may be fully the way through it. But it has had an impact on the world. And as it has had an impact on the world, we just have to be ready. That not only should we aspire to be successful, we have to matter. We have to be significant. And for that to happen, we have to look at our culture, bring more care in, and ensure that what we are doing is we're delivering, we're delivering for the short term and long term. And that truly is where we need to go over the course of the next 10 years. Lakshman, I think that leads in very well to my final question. And what I want to ask you is, as a global influencer and a chief executive, I think of one of the world's most important consumer companies, what is one legacy that you would like to contribute to? I don't mean what legacy you want to be remembered by. What do you want to actually contribute to as a legacy in advancing the ball? I think we really need to matter, back to this point. I think that we have the ability as an institution. There are so many challenges and fractures that I don't think are visible to many people. I'll give you an example. When the pandemic was at its heights, the number of people who were not receiving treatment in sexually transmitted diseases was at its all-time high. And digital provides an ability to frankly build this bridge to deliver some of these things in a very different way. We have brands that play in that space. And the real question for me is, how do we take the brands, the power of the brands, the technology that's coming, the geographic and global presence that we have, by the way, the the meaning that our company really can bring to bear with these brands and find a way not just to be successful, but to have meaning. And personally, what I would love as a legacy is that when people think of me 10, 20 years from now, is that it is someone who frankly taught or someone who built or someone who created. And so it isn't the ego of all of that, but it's just more that we leave something much better than it was when we actually inherited it. And that's really in some ways the kind of drive of what I have. And I know what my company has. Well, Latchman, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure people are going to get a lot out of hearing your perspectives about what's going on at the moment. And also from us, thank you for everything your team and you're doing at Record. You are really already making a huge difference to a great company in our view. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hamish. And I do appreciate uh, you for having me on. That was Lakshman Narasimhan, Chief Executive Officer of Reckitt Benkiza, speaking with our Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Hamish Douglas. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.